Residents and Fellows Audio Corner. Today's podcast will be an interview with Dr. Michael Todd, who is one of the giants and leading experts in the field of neuroanesthesia, and the topic today is anesthesia for intracranial aneurysm clipping. This is Dr. Shobhna Rajan and member of the Education Committee of the SNAC. Dr. Todd needs no introduction since every one of us who is associated with the field of anesthesiology know about his contributions to the specialty. Dr. Todd is currently Professor and Vice Chair for Research at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine in Minneapolis, where he has been since the summer of 2016. Although he started off his career at the University of California, San Diego, he subsequently moved to University of Iowa, where he spent 30 years teaching and training students and residents. He was chair and DEO of the Carver College of Medicine in Iowa for the last decade. When I asked him for a CV to write out a brief introduction for this podcast, I was so overwhelmed to see it. He has contributed extensively to our specialty through research, education, and leadership in neuroanesthesia. Due to time constraints, I will be able to only mention some of them. While he has received many honors over the course of his life, the two most treasured are the Distinguished Service Award from the Society of Neurosciences in Anesthesiology and Critical Care in 2009 and the American Society of Anesthesiologists Excellence in Research Award in 2016. He has consistently received multiple awards for excellence in teaching throughout his career. He has about 200 peer-reviewed publications, 59 book chapters, and he has lost count of the number of abstracts and invited lectures, which probably run into the 300s. Now, I do want to mention that he was the primary investigator for the iconic IHAST trial, which evaluated the protective effect of mild hypothermia in aneurysm surgery. His other areas of research are again extremely important and include subarachnoid hemorrhage and outcomes, cervical spine motion during laryngoscopy, neuromuscular blockade monitoring, conservative approach to blood transfusion in OR, postoperative visual loss, and faculty performance metrics. He held the position of Editor-in-Chief of the Anesthesiology Journal from 1996 to 2006, and the list goes on and on. Dr. Todd, we are very fortunate to have you today. On behalf of the SNAC Education Committee, we extend a very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much. That's probably the most glowing introduction I think I've ever had. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much again. Our first question to you is, in a patient coming for aneurysm clipping after subarachnoid hemorrhage, in addition to knowing the general medical conditions of the patient, what should, what should one be aware of regarding preoperative workup and why? Um, you, can, you can create a very long list of things, but I think the most important is basically the patient's neurologic status as you see the patient on arrival or prior to surgery. Um, it tells you an enormous amount about the brain and the physiology of the brain. For example, good grade patients, for example, World Federation score or Hunt and Hess grades one and two, um, are largely normal in terms of things like ICP and swollen brains and cerebral blood flow and those sort of things. Um, as grade deteriorates, all of these factors get worse. Um, and as a result, I think patients become a bit more unforgiving in terms of how you go about managing. So what I look at, look for first and overwhelmingly is basically 
neurologic grade uh, in the patient as I physically see the patient. Not what I read in the chart, but what I actually see in the patient. Physical examination is extremely important. So sometimes we see... And, you, and, and to interrupt, you don't need to be a neurologist to do this. I mean, it basically is a, a simple matter of seeing whether the patient responds to verbal commands and stimuli. So it doesn't require a great deal of complexity. I think anyone is capable of assessing this degree of neurologic uh, function. Sure. Sometimes we see that these patients have significant preoperative EKG changes. What should we do about these? Um, in the overwhelming majority of cases, ignore them. Um, mm. Patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage can have almost any kind of EKG morphologic abnormality that you can imagine. Um, literally, changes in P wave, PR interval, PQRS morphology, T wave morphology, everything you can imagine, and it does not reflect heart disease. Um, it reflects, it may reflect myocardial injury from the autonomic storm associated with the hemorrhage, or it may be direct neural input to the heart. About the only abnormalities that seem to be connected to patient outcome are a prolonged QT interval or a heart rate in the extremes. In other words, marked bradycardia or tachycardia. Both of those seem to be associated with outcome, but there's no evidence that trying to change those, uh, those EKG abnormalities can change the outcome at all. Um, true myocardial ischemia, in other words, uh, a segmental ischemic area in the heart is very, very uncommon following subarachnoid hemorrhage. Sure. So do these um, EKG changes like a prolonged QT interval or sustained bradycardia indicate that the patient has a severely raised ICP at that point? Not necessarily, um, although they tend to be more common with poorer grade patients. Um, those two risk factors, QT interval and heart rate, have been shown to be independently associated with outcome, even if you adjust for neurologic grades. So it isn't necessarily um, related to ICP and so on and so forth. Oh, that is good to know. Our next question to you is, what are the anesthetic goals for aneurysm clipping surgery? Um, I think I frustrate my residents when they ask me this question because um, my goals really are keep it simple and keep them hemodynamically stable. Um, it's kind of the, 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 the Goldilocks principle. You know, blood pressure, heart rate, not too high, not too low, except for very specific indications. Um, CO2, a little bit low, not terribly low. Um, use mannitol and hypertonic saline to reduce brain swelling, and don't let the patient move. Um, I know that that sounds like I'm trivializing the situation, but I think those are really the most important things when it comes to taking care of these patients. A sure. good, stable, basic anesthetic. Mm -hmm. So at what numbers should we keep the intraoperative blood pressure pre- and post-clipping? What medications would you use to attain these parameters? 
Um, I don't have an absolute number. It's based on what the patient's baseline blood pressure is like in most cases that we care for, whether they have an aneurysm or not. I do tend to keep their pressures a little bit lower than normal, you know, 10, 20% below baseline. I do it with basically anesthetic agent. Um, I'll just turn up my volatile agent to do it. Sometimes when they're working around the, the dome of the aneurysm, particularly if the surgeon looks like they're having trouble, I'll go a little bit lower than that, but I think the days of profound, prolonged hypotension are long past. Uh, back when I was a resident, it was not a rarity to take patients' mean arterial pressures down to 30, 40, 50 millimeters of mercury, sometimes for long periods of time during an aneurysm clipping. We don't do that anymore. Um, but if we took a patient down to a mean of 60, 65 for a short while during manipulation, that wouldn't surprise me at And then once the clip is in place, bring the pressure back up to baseline. And I like to avoid severe hypertension post-clip during emergence um, because it is associated with, and I have personally seen it associated with uh, hemorrhage uh, following clipping. Even with a clip in place, the risk of hemorrhage remains. Mm, I see. So um, our next question uh, would be asked by our CA2 resident of the Cleveland Clinic. His name is uh, Dr. Uh, Dominic Brandage, and I will put you on to him. Certainly. Hi, Dr. Todd, and thank you for the opportunity here today. <clears throat> My question for you is that one of the main anesthetic goals for cerebral aneurysm clipping um, anesthesia is avoiding increases in ICP. Typically, we use short-acting opioids um, to inhibit the sympathetic responses that could cause this to occur. To the best of my knowledge, there are no studies that evaluate the efficacy of esmolol in neuropatients for this use. Do you see any role for esmolol um, in the future? Um, well, first of all, uh, I, I hate to contradict you, but I've never thought one of our main anesthetic goals is avoiding increases in ICP. Um, I think avoiding increases in ICP is relatively easy to do as long as you don't let the patient's blood pressure go sky high during various periods of stimulation, such as during intubation and pin placement and incision and so forth. I think the real role for something like Esmolol is to block those sympathetic responses um, and to try and eliminate those acute hypertensive events. Um, and, I mean, we use Esmolol, we use uh, propofol will use opioids. I'm trying, there is an old literature on using esmolol for um, blunting the response to intubations in a subarachnoid hemorrhage model, and it does seem to work, but I don't know that anybody's ever looked at it beyond that. Um, I know there was some interest a number of years ago in trying to look at beta blockers as actually a therapeutic agent uh, in patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage, using it to try and alter outcome. But that, never, that study, to the best of my knowledge, never got off the ground. So we use esmolol and labetalol and so forth a lot. Um, but again, for relatively short-term control during intense stimulus. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Todd, for giving him an answer. I think uh, his, um, his, he is 
he thinks about Esmolol a lot and had this question in the OR for me the other day. Thank you, Dominic. It's, it's a wonderful drug. I mean, we use it a lot. I use probably use labetalol more than Esmolol, but I love beta okay. blockers. So Sure. So um, our next question to you is, uh, we would like to know what is meant by a temporary clip? What is the purpose of it? Well, a temporary clip is just a variation of a standard aneurysm clip, uh, and it's placed on a large artery proximal to the aneurysm. In other words, for example, the proximal middle cerebral artery or sometimes the distal internal carotid or just about any place you can think of. The idea is, is to reduce the perfusion pressure selectively to the aneurysm to reduce the risk of rupture during surgical manipulation of that aneurysm. Sometimes it's put on after an aneurysm ruptures to try and slow the bleeding down enough so that the surgeon can work on the aneurysm itself. You'd rather put the temporary clip on before the aneurysm ruptures um, because sometimes finding the right place to put it in a field full of blood can be really difficult. Um, right. It's temporary clipping is, is almost always associated with some degree of distal cerebral ischemia, in other words, distal to the clip. And these are put on large cerebral vessels, middle cerebral, anterior cerebral vessels. So there is some risk of distal ischemia. Um, typically what we'll do when a temporary clip is put in place is to actually increase blood pressure a bit um, in an effort to try and enhance collateral perfusion and to try and minimize the amount of uh, distal ischemia. Um, I think the goal, in, certainly in my mind, is to keep the duration of temporary clipping as short as possible. Uh, everyone I know starts a stopwatch the moment a temporary clip is placed, and once it's been on for more than about 10 minutes, uh, we start nagging the surgeon and getting nervous because there is good data from uh, quite a long while ago that the risk of stroke goes up with the longer and longer duration of temporary clipping. Sure. So during the temporary clip placement, is there any role for preemptive brain protection? Many times the surgeons ask us uh, for birth suppression. Yeah. Well, those people who know me well know that my answer to that question is always a very firm no. Okay. Um, there is absolutely no data whatsoever in human beings supporting the value of giving barbiturates, propofol, etomidate, or anything else you can think of. Um, and there is a, a, some reasonable data showing that it doesn't work. Um, so I think that the, the, if, if we're going to be practicing evidence-based medicine, um, giving those medications doesn't make any sense. Now, that being said, I have to tell you that I've gotten talked into giving a fair amount of thiopental in the old days and propofol more recently, um, largely to deal with situations where a surgeon is really struggling um, with an aneurysm. In other words, where they're having difficulty getting around the aneurysm, where they're having problems with hemorrhage, where they're dealing with very long temporary clip times. Um, I'm not convinced that we're doing anything valuable for the patient. I think it allows us to say we did everything we could. I maybe I don't want to be facetious, but we may be treating the surgeon as much as we're treating the patient. 
Um, I always kind of worry about it because I don't want to get pushed into giving medications that produces hemodynamic instability. I don't want to hurt a patient by using a treatment that I think is almost certainly worthless. So do you believe that there's a role for neuromonitoring in these cases? I don't know. Um, it's a really interesting question. Um, what you see is, is that neuromonitoring is very center-specific. We saw this certainly in the IHAS trials. Some institutions do very elaborate neuromonitoring. We do at the University of Minnesota. We did not at the University of Iowa. And it boils down to uh, an institutional preference. There's no good data to show that centers where neuromonitoring is common have better results than centers that don't use neuromonitoring at all. Um, so it's kind of an interesting dilemma. I will tell you that people have very strong opinions about the value. Certainly, um, you can see changes in, for example, somatosensory evoked responses associated with either temporary clipping or with a misplaced aneurysm clip. Um, whether or not you can manipulate those changes and do something that allows you to normalize the evoked responses in a predictable fashion is the hard part. Um, I've right. seen a fair number of patients who lost their somatosensory evoked responses and woke up hemiplegic, but in fact there didn't seem to be anything that we could do during the procedure to correct the situation. Um, I've seen patients lose their somatosensory evoked responses. The patient surgeon takes the temporary clip off and they come back. Um, is it useful? I don't know. Um, I know it's a matter of very strong personal preference. Sure. So our next question is catastrophic situation. What should the anesthesiologist do if the aneurysm ruptures? Um, I'm asked that question a lot, and my first response is to stay calm and do nothing. Mm -hmm. um, because most aneurysm ruptures are relatively minor. Um, they look terrible because you've got a microscope in place, and the microscope field just turns red. Um, and so it looks like something terrible is happening, but in fact, at least early on, the amount of blood being lost is not terribly catastrophic. It can get that way over time, but initially, you usually sit there and say, hmm, let me just watch this for a while, because in most cases, the surgeon can gain control of that bleeding, um, and it's not a big problem. If they can't get control of the bleeding and it continues, then I think the first step in here is just a little bit modest drop in blood pressure. Um, I just turn up my volatile agent and push the pressure down a little bit while the surgeon attempts to get control. Only when that doesn't begin to work or that the period of time where the surgeon is struggling with getting control only if those don't work do I start thinking about turning to a drug like adenosine uh, or on occasion bilateral compression of the carotids in the neck, which actually can work very nicely in terms of stopping the bleeding. I see. So with respect to adenosine, what is the dose and speed of administration? Are there any contraindications? Uh, well, the dose and, and speed are, are, are pretty well worked out. You give the drug as a bolus as fast okay. as you can inject it. Um, I usually, and I've only used it probably a half a dozen times in my life, 
I usually start low on the sort of 6 to 12 milligram range um, because I don't quite know what to expect. I've actually given as low as 4 milligrams just to see what would happen. Um, but the recommended doses are on the order of about 0.3 to 0.4 milligrams per kilo, and that'll give you about 45 seconds of asystole. Um, if you're going to give a, a adenosine, though, you have to work very closely with the surgeon because you basically don't want to waste that period of time where the blood pressure is effectively zero. You want the surgeon ready to get in there and try and get control of the aneurysm the moment that you give the adenosine. Okay, yeah. So uh, what are your thoughts on intraoperative hypothermia? At what temperature should we aim to keep our patients? Hypothermia doesn't work. Don't do it and keep them normothermic. All right. Simple so, answer. I target about 36 to 37 degrees centigrade routinely and keep okay. people at those temperatures as best we can. Sure. What are the recommendations from the IHAST study? Same thing I just mentioned. Normal thermia yeah. is okay. Hypothermia gets, gains you nothing. Okay, okay. Can you tell us the best ways to prevent post-operative vasospasm? Uh, that's a very good question. And I must admit, it's one that I haven't thought of a lot lately. Um, other than making sure that patients have gotten their calcium channel blockers from the time they were admitted, I don't know what we can do to actually prevent it. Um, there have been a lot of efforts over the years. Um, surgeons can try and remove blood from the subarachnoid space by irrigating it out. There's been a lot of what I call voodoo efforts, you know, putting papaverin on vessels and irrigating the subarachnoid space with calcium blockers. and People have looked at endothelin blockers. and The list of medications that have been tried to prevent vasospasm is very long and almost totally unsuccessful. Um, I think that basically what we do is to not think about vasospasm, but to think about the consequences of vasospasm. In other words, the ischemic consequences Basically, what we're trying to do is to drive blood past an area of relative obstruction. Um, we've all heard about triple H therapy, you know, hypertension, hypervolemia, and hemodilution. Um, my personal bias is that the only one of those three H's that matters is hypertension, um, although volume loading can make it a lot easier to do that. I confess that I begin to get nervous about blood pressures over about 160 to 170 in a patient, certainly prior to emergence. Um, but if the patient is awake and has a focal deficit that can't be explained by anything else, and we all agree it looks like vasospasm, I think pushing to higher blood pressures is sometimes worth the effort. Um, on the other hand, overly aggressive hypertension and volume loading can push these patients into congestive heart failure, and essentially you create a complication without a benefit. My general impression, and I think there is support for, the, for it in the literature, is, is that if you don't see clinical improvement with a blood pressure of 160 to about 180 systolic, going much higher than that isn't going to gain much. And I think when that begins to happen, we start thinking about interventional techniques, in other words, angioplastic techniques to try and relieve a focal stenotic, focal vasospastic area. Mm, sure. So uh, what are the emergence goals with respect to the blood pressure, the airway? How do we extubate these patients? Yeah. Um, 
I think we all, I mean, anesthesiologists and surgeons alike, really want these patients to be awake and responsive as reasonably soon as it's possible post-op. Uh, there's no question that a clinical neurologic exam is better than all the fancy electronic technology that's out there to tell us something about functional status. So we would like to have patients awake and responsive reasonably quickly. Um, so I think that means that we try to do an anesthetic that is compatible with a rapid emergence and extubation. Although I'm absolutely unaware of any data that says that one particular way of doing an anesthetic is better than any other way. I just tell people, do what you do best that you think is consistent with having a patient wake up reasonably quickly at the end of the patient, end of the procedure. Um, I set upper limits of systolic blood pressures typically around 160 millimeters of mercury. Uh, and as I said in an earlier uh, question, I'm pretty liberal with labetalol and then hydralazine. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, I hate ugly wake-ups. In other words, where patients are coughing and bucking and their blood pressure is spiking and everything that goes with it. Um, I'm really a great fan of the smooth, quiet wake-up one of the reasons that I tend to be relatively generous with the use of opioids during these cases because I think it makes a smoother wake-up, although I've seen other people succeed in doing it with other techniques. Um, if I don't like the way a patient is waking up, I'll actually start over. In other words, give them a little bit of a bolus of propofol, put them back to sleep again, get everything calmed down, and try again. There are times when you can't do this. Um, if you've had a procedure where the intraoperative course has been very, very difficult, where there's been a lot of blood loss, where there has been um, a very long uh, temporary clip time or multiple applications of a temporary clip, I become a little bit less aggressive about trying to wake up and extubate people. I kind of like to wake them up with an endotracheal tube in place and try to gain some idea of whether they have a major focal deficit. If they have a major focal deficit, now what I'm worried about is a cerebral infarction and rapid swelling of the brain, which would not be a situation where I want somebody awake and extubated. Um, that's fortunately a relatively minor number of these cases, but it's the exception to the rule. Sure. So this brings us to the end of this podcast, and thank you, Dr. Todd, for giving us your valuable time. Well, thank you very much. The questions were very, very on point, and I enjoyed thinking my way through the answers. Thank you. Thank you. We enjoyed having you with us today. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.